Welcome to the Expert Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Larry Bush specializes in infectious diseases in Palm Beach County in Florida. He is graciously giving up some of his time to help us better understand and get some good updates on the vaccinations and so many of the controversies. Dr. Bush, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. Are these vaccinations safe? And what benefits have we seen in what we call the risk-benefit ratios? Just your overview of what's going on, please. The two available are the Pfizer and the Moderna, and they're called messenger RNA vaccine. That's a type of production for immunity. People think, well, these were rushed and there's nothing known about them. Messenger RNA technology for vaccines has been looked at for years. In fact, the physician woman scientist who first was involved with messenger RNA science was at the University of Pennsylvania when I was in the 70s. And since then, she now works at BioNTech in Germany developing this vaccine. The reason why we haven't seen messenger RNA vaccines before is because when you think of it, the vast majority of vaccines we use are either attenuated, meaning live viruses that have been made so they can't reproduce, or viruses that have been killed. An example of a killed virus is the measles, mumps, German measles vaccine. An attenuated viral vaccine is the flu vaccine. The other kind of vaccines we're used to getting are polysaccharide vaccines, like the pneumococcal or the meningococcal. But polysaccharide is a bacterial process, not a viral one. We had to turn to this messenger RNA vaccine that's been on the shelf been looked at for other viruses, Zika. It's been looked at for the first SARS in 2002. And it never had to go forward because fortunately those pandemics burnt out on their own. So we had to go to this technology because nobody was going to challenge a patient with the COVID virus for a vaccine trial. The other vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson and the AstraZeneca, the Johnson & Johnson, they did the trial initially with one dose to try to get the vaccine available more quickly because of the urgency. I'm the investigator for the two-dose vaccine, like all the others are two-dose, and I believe in time we're going to see that Johnson & Johnson, if given two doses, is as effective as the other vaccines. This is called a viral vector vaccine. It's an adenovirus, which is a common cold virus, which has been attenuated just like your flu virus. It can't infect you. Attached to it is what's called the spike protein from the COVID virus. And that spike protein is those things you see the picture of on the outside of the virus, the spikes. And those are the material part of the virus that attaches to our respiratory cells and infect us. If we have antibodies to that particular piece of the virus and we can block that from attaching, they're beneficial. The messenger RNA also produces the same antibodies against the spike protein. People say, well, do they work? In the trials, the definition of working or the definition of efficacy was who got symptomatic COVID. It wasn't who got COVID. It was who developed COVID but had symptoms. So that was, as you read, for the messenger RNA Pfizer Moderna, was somewhere in the 90, 95% raise. It was somewhat lower in the Johnson & Johnson. But all three of them, their secondary point of study was, but who got very sick and who wound up in the hospital if they did get COVID? And they were extremely effective at that. So yes, there was still a chance of getting symptomatic COVID from the vaccine. There was still a chance of getting asymptomatic COVID from the vaccine. But the chance of getting very sick and getting in the hospital was significantly improved or there was benefit by the vaccines. When you look at the side effects, there's a host of side effects from any vaccine. Your immune system is being revved up, so your arm gets achy, you get fever, you get a flu-like illness. And then we heard about the blood clots and the myocarditis and pericarditis. 
When you look at the risk of those things occurring from the vaccine compared to the risk of those things occurring from COVID, birth control pills, smoking, other viruses, other vaccines, they're minimal. Everything has a risk and everything has a benefit. Here, the benefit is so much higher than the risk that I think it's personally, for me, it would be irresponsible not to offer a vaccine to every one of my patients. Correct me if I am wrong, but the mRNA of vaccines go into your body. They induce the macrophages, which one of the cells in the body, to produce the spike. The spike then induces the immunologic system, and then the mRNA is degraded. So it's not hanging around. And therefore, it's a couple notches safer because it's not persistently in the body. Is that a fair image of what's happening? That's exactly on point. The messenger RNA allows your macrophage cells in your muscles, it first gets injected into your muscles, to recognize the spike protein, which is not the virus, but a part of the virus, a protein piece of the virus. It makes antibodies against them. What's called your B cells are now revved up, and that messenger RNA is gone does not integrate into your own genetic makeup. It's a carrier. It's a Trojan horse, and it leaves the playing field. It does its thing, and then it's gone. You're an investigator, and you're a treating doctor. How do you address people who have the hesitancy about taking them? I try to go through the science in simple terms that we could all understand and explain why it's effective, why it makes a good immune response, and why it does not harm you. The side effects that people report are common from any type of immunologic reaction when we get a vaccine. The serious side effects have been described with any potential vaccine. There are serious side effects from taking antibiotics. There are serious side effects from taking chemotherapy. But we weigh the risk and the benefit, and and we really favor the benefit here. Then I tell them, let's be frank, right now with this surge of COVID cases, everybody will spout off, well, I know people who've had the vaccine and they get a breakthrough case of COVID. There have been 169 million people in the United States as of yesterday who've had two vaccines fully vaccinated. There have been approximately 150,000 known cases of breakthrough in vaccinated people. Let's do the math. 150,000 out of 169 million. Number two, if you look at the people who do breakthrough who've had vaccine, they're not being hospitalized. Now, that's not 100%. I know that. Right now, I'm on staff at three hospitals. One has approximately 86 COVID patients in it, one has approximately 80, and one has approximately 120. Out of all those, I know of six people in the hospital who were vaccinated. So clearly, the people who are getting ill now with a virus that we call Delta, which is much more contagious, not necessarily more deadly, but more contagious, are the people who are not vaccinated. The vaccinees who are breaking through with the Delta virus are staying home with a cold-like symptom, what you would call a simple flu, and getting over it. Give us a 30-second education here about why do viruses mutate. But I don't know if the people understand what a mutation is. A mutation is a error in your genetic material. Every time a human reproduces, you produce genetic material from both parents in the fetus as it develops. And if there's an error in that genetic replication, that's called a mutation. The genes have mutated. There's a slight change. What's different about viruses and bacteria is they cannot reproduce themselves outside of another living being. If it's a human virus, they reproduce themselves in a human. If it's an animal virus, in an animal. 
some of these can jump species and reproduce in both. And that's why we have this COVID. It's a novel coronavirus that was destined to be in an animal, but somehow mutated so it could adapt to a human. We never were exposed to this before, so we don't have an immune system response to it. When we talk about these variants, the mutations that's happening, originally we had the alpha virus. We no longer name them by country they came from because that would seem unfair. They didn't necessarily come from a country. That was the first place it was recognized. But we had the alpha virus originally. Now you have what's known as the delta virus. As the alpha virus spread throughout the world, and when it keeps making copies of itself, keeps having babies, it keeps having the chance to have a genetic mistake, and that's called a mutation. The genetic mistakes that give that virus a disadvantage for living die off. That's called survival of the fittest. The viruses that have a genetic mistake that gives them an advantage for living, they become the predominant virus because of survival of the fittest. They can run faster. They can jump higher, so to speak. What's changed between the alpha virus and the delta virus is the delta virus is much more contagious. If we felt that the alpha virus would infect two people for every one person who was infected, in other words, if I had the alpha virus, COVID, I may infect two others if I was near them and they were not immune or vaccinated. With the delta, it's four times that. It's eight. The delta virus is much more contagious, transmissible, spreadable, the vaccines work just well against it. What's the concern here? This is going to continue to have genetic mistakes as it replicates in people who are not immune, this Delta virus. And we'll move on to the next Greek letter. Right now, there's a Lambda virus in Texas. Also, is very contagious. And what the scientists are concerned about, the mutations that give the virus an advantage will become the predominant virus. Eventually, we'll have a mutation that our vaccines we're giving now won't be working for. That's the concern. Is that like the flu shot where you have to get one every year because it changes just a little bit? Exactly. The flu changes every year depending on which part of the world it comes from. And we look at what's going on in the southern hemisphere the season before because we know that's what's coming to the northern hemisphere. And flus are transmitted by birds and from person to person. COVID virus is transmitted from person to person. Your pet at home is not going to infect you. Birds flying around the community are not going to infect you. Birds do bring the flu virus, but not this. Is COVID, therefore, primarily transmitted by aerosol, by spray, by coughing and sneezing and talking? It's a respiratory. Primarily transmitted by what we call droplet nuclei, which means these are nuclei large enough that within six feet they fall to the surface. That's why the six-foot distancing. The regular facial covering or the surgical mask or the cloth mask is effective. Those things will not pass through it with any great degree. If you're distanced from the person who's speaking, coughing, laughing, singing, sneezing, within six feet those particles fall. Now, yes, some of the particles are smaller and they could spread in the air. So in closed spaces, those are of more concern, and since they're smaller, we would use an N95 mask, meaning that the mask filters out 95% of all those smaller particles floating in the air. If you're walking outside, there's such a dispersal in the air, it's not relevant. We're talking about in closed spaces, in hospital rooms, in gatherings where people are singing and coughing and sneezing, etc. 
The next question is the hand hygiene and cleaning surfaces. The scientific studies show that you can isolate the COVID virus off of various surfaces, whether it's plastic or aluminum or metal or cloth, for various times. But the science doesn't really show that that's a way of spreading it. Because just because you can find it on there, there may be not enough of it on there, and it may not be viable enough to cause infection. So for all intents and purposes, this is a respiratory spread disease. We all speak. We all cough. We all breathe. Tuberculosis, as of today, and people don't realize this, a respiratory spread disease is the number one cause of infectious disease death in the world. Imagine that. Today, 2021. It seems like a disease, at least from the communities that I live in, that we don't see anymore. But I'm wrong. And the reason for that is because last year there were only approximately 8,700 cases of active TB diagnosed in the United States out of 330 million. And we're the third most populated country in the world at 4.8%. But that's all we are is 4.8%. Unfortunately, where TB is epidemic, which makes up the largest parts of the world, it's spread. And if you said, well, what's the difference between that respiratory spread virus and things like measles and chickenpox and germ? measles and now COVID is, we have effective vaccines for all those. We do not have an effective vaccine for tuberculosis. That's why it's the number one cause of infectious disease death in the world. Jump to the notion of the booster shot. Are they because the original vaccine's immunity just doesn't last and we're trying to keep it up into the 90% or is it to bring us closer to 100%? Why do we need the booster shot? We boost because we know or we suspect that somebody's immune system either did not get geared up from the two vaccines they originally had or because their immune system is waning as time goes on. We know from measles, mumps, German measles, chickenpox, the immunity one builds up from those viruses lasts what we think is a lifetime. We don't have the luxury of knowing that for the vaccines from COVID because we've only been giving them since December 2020. We may know 10 years from now that the vaccines give you lifelong immunity, but to end this pandemic, we can't take that chance. Here's what we do know. The people whose immune systems were weakened by transplant or medications or cancers or chemotherapy or even simple drugs that somebody would not think of like Humira, which isn't simple, but you see the ads on TV for Humira, for Crohn's disease or rheumatoid arthritis or all the immune suppressants for psoriasis. Even something is what you would think is benign is taking prednisone 20 milligrams a day for chronic obstructive lung disease is a form of immune suppressant. In all the vaccine trials, the Moderna, the Pfizer, the Johnson & Johnson, the AstraZeneca, those people were not in the trial. Pregnant people could not be in the trial. So if you ask the Pfizer people, how well did your patients with, let's say, Humira treatment for Crohn's disease do in the trial as far as building up immunity, their answer is, we don't know. They were not in the trial. Now we take these vaccines and we use them in the real world experience. I don't know if people realize this. In the Pfizer trial, there were 39,000 people in the total trial that the FDA approved. Only half of those people got a vaccine. That's approximately 19,000 people. 169 million people have been given a vaccine in the U.S. A large part of these people are immune suppressant for the reasons I said. What we've learned in them, the real world experience, the people with immune suppressant diseases don't have the same good response to the vaccine. So therefore, we're boosting them. What we've also learned from them is their response wears off after time. So we're boosting them. I think that's a good thing. Think about it. 
every 10 years we're given a tetanus booster for the same reason. The question is going to be, well, how about the people whose immune system is fine? Right now, the FDA says, as far as we know, keeping track on the effectiveness of healthy people from the first two vaccines, it's still long-lasting. We don't recommend a booster right now. If that changes in December, I don't want to see people go back and see, say they didn't know, they didn't tell us the truth. They're telling you the truth. They're saying we're going to keep an eye on this. And if we find out that you, the healthy individual, would be better off with a booster, we're going to recommend it. They are recommending it for the immune deficient right now because they know that it is beneficial on them. It raises the questions, and I don't want to go too far afield on it, but people are watching the development and the evolution of the medication, the vaccine, with more overview than they're used to seeing with almost any other medication. And the development and use and indications for medications, they do change. We become better at them. A lot of the things we say in January will be modified by time September and October comes along. It doesn't mean that they're ineffective or we're not telling the truth. This aggravates me so much, and I want to tell people we're not trying to hurt you, but you're seeing the real process of the development of a medicinal. I would imagine that's frustrating for you as well. Oh, absolutely. People think that when you change the information that you were deceiving them to begin with, as opposed to learn more, and we can even be better at it right now. Think about the early pandemics. They didn't have the chance to even learn. The 1918 Spanish flu ended because of herd immunity. Those who were going to get sick and survive did, and those who were going to get sick and die did, and the survivors were now immune. They could not get infected and pass it off. That's the concept of herd immunity. The people who are stepping up now and getting vaccine are indirectly protecting the people who don't want to get a vaccine. Let's say we can get to 80% of the country has been vaccinated. They are doing the other 20% a favor by protecting them. Because if there's not very much virus in the community, the chance of those 20% getting infected is small. We will get there one of two ways. We'll get there either by everybody in the country who could become infected, becoming infected, and like the 1918 Spanish flu, those who will live, live, and those who will get sick and die. But it's not just a question of living and dying. We've all heard about the long haulers. Once you destroy part of a building, let's call it our body, even though the fire is out, unless you can rebuild that part of the building, you have a destroyed building. We can't rebuild your lungs once they've been significantly hurt. We don't know exactly what this does to the other organ systems over time, and those are the long haulers, people who never get over the fatigue, people who have to use home oxygen, people whose kidneys functions never got back to normal. Their virus is gone, but the part of their building, part of their body that was destroyed by the storm, by the fire, by the flood, can't be repaired. And that um, brings us, and that just catapults to the notion of protecting adolescents and children because we don't want a five-year-old to get COVID and then spend the rest of their life with the long-haul situations. What is the difference in the vaccine that's given to a child? Is it just a matter of dosing or is it something else as well? Right now, the vaccine, Pfizer and Moderna have information where Pfizer is approved for children down to 12. Having said that, the population in the United States from 12 on up that's been vaccinated is only 59%. Take out the 12-year-olds to the 18-year-olds, it's only 50% in this country. So many other countries are doing so much better. The vaccine, the Moderna and the Pfizer, which are used in people between 12 and 18, is the same vaccine in adults. The trials for children between the ages of 2 and 12 are ongoing. That's going to be the challenge. Are parents going to want to vaccinate their younger child? My recommendation would be if the FDA looks at the data from those trials and says the benefit clearly outweighs the risk, 
I would do it for the reason you said. Those children are getting infected. 64% of all the infections in Florida right now are in people under 35 years old. And we won't know what the long-term effect in those children is until years gone by. What we do know is that the vaccine does not appear to be causing any problem. And theoretically, it should not have any long-term problem for the reasons you said. It doesn't last in your body. The Trojan horse that's making the vaccine produce antibodies, your protection, leaves your body. That's no longer there. Yes, I believe that vaccinating children is crucial for two reasons, to protect them, but to help bring this pandemic to an end, because they are spreaders. Regardless of what you hear, children don't spread the disease. That is absolutely incorrect. We will get through this. It's going to take science and people like you to continue to do the research and actually treat people. Larry Bush is a physician in Southeast Florida. Dr. Bush, thank you so much for taking us through a very complex, and I'm sure there are many chapters in this book that we didn't even get to yet. If people have questions about the vaccines, please speak to a competent physician or other data source to satisfy your questions and and really, really consider the long-term benefits of the protection of a vaccine. Dr. Bush, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Let let me just end with one quote from one of my favorites. You know, without being political, John F. Kennedy said, there clearly are risks to action, but they are greatly outweighed by comfortable inaction. Very well said. 